Let's go to John chapter 8 this morning. of a certain age will remember Geraldine and the devil made me do it or is that is that her brother flip I, I can't remember which one okay the, the, no, the devil made me do it well did he it's a good question or is it within my nature to want to do those things and how would the devil work if we were to attempt to figure out how Satan would go about certain things I mean Characteristically or traditionally, we see Satan as, uh, what, this guy in red, and he's got horns, I'm, you know, stereotypically. Uh, but I, th- I think Satan's a lot more subtle than that. I think Satan doesn't need to come at us full bore when he can come at us by the side. And as we look at, at, at this passage today, uh, I think we need to keep in, re- to re- keep in our minds that rarely does Satan come at us right here. Usually, he comes at us from our peripheral, or usually he comes in a form that we don't expect, and then we are shocked to find out the results. So, if you are able, would you stand with me as we prepare to read the Word of God? John chapter 8, and I'm really going to begin in 37 today and read through 47. So, let's pray. Heavenly Father, as we come to you today, we ask your hand of insight and uh, that your Holy Spirit would come, provide for us understanding of your word, Lord, that we might uh, see the works of Satan, but be reminded of your power and righteousness and the strength that is available to us. We ask in Christ's name, amen. So John chapter 8, verse 37 and following. And Jesus, this is the the dialogue with the Jewish leaders at this time. Jesus says, I know that you are Abraham's offspring, yet you seek to kill me, because my word has no place in you. I speak the things which I have seen with my father, therefore you also do the things which you heard from your father. They answered and said to him, Abraham is our father. And Jesus said to them, if you are Abraham's children, do the deeds of Abraham. But as it is, you are seeking to kill me. A man who has told you the truth, which I heard from God, this Abraham did not do. You are doing the deeds of your father. They said to him, we are not born of fornication. We have one father, even God. And Jesus said to them, if God were your father, you would love me. For I proceeded forth and have come from God. For I have not even come on my own initiative, but he sent me. Why do you not understand what I am saying? It is because you cannot hear my word. You are of your father, the devil, and you want to do the desires of your father. He was a murderer from the beginning and does not stand in the truth because there is no truth in him. Whenever he speaks, it is a lie. He speaks from his own nature, for he is a liar and the father of lies. But because I speak with the truth, you do not believe me. Which one of you convicts me of sin? I speak the truth. Why do you not believe me? He who is of God hears the words of God. For this reason you do not hear them, because you are not of God. This is God's inspired word for us today. So please be seated. (laughs) 
Now, perhaps you have traveled and been to another country or some place where English is not readily spoken, and maybe you got separated from a group or were, were off on your own and looked at your watch and said, oh, I better be back to the hotel or to the bus or whatever, and you looked around and you didn't know where you were, and you sought someone out and you asked them, and they looked at you as if you were from another country because they didn't speak English. And no matter how slowly or how loudly you spoke it, they still didn't understand it. Okay? I remember we were in Kiev, this was back in college, and uh, we, we looked at our watches and said, well, we better get back to the hotel. And, and uh, we, we worked out how we were going to ask somebody, and, and I walked up to this guy and said, uh, can you direct me, my perfect Russian, perfect Russian, can you direct me to the taxi stand? And he looked at me and said, I'm sorry, I don't speak Russian. Uh, out of all the people we picked out on the street, this was an American who was working in Germany who just happened to be traveling in Kiev that, that weekend. And I said, well, you're a lot of help, and then we, we began to talk a little bit more. But, but sometimes there's a language barrier. You simply do not understand one another because you don't speak the same language. You've already also probably experienced an understanding barrier. Now, this is when you might speak the same language, but you simply come from two different perspectives and you have no understanding of the other person's position. And in fact, their perspective seems, seems totally foreign to you. And you can't understand how they came to that conclusion. And you know what's worse? They're thinking the same thing about you. How could you be so stupid as not to see and understand their perspective? Let me give you an example. Now, there are people here today not here today, in this country today, who think that our current president is the best ever and that our previous president was the worst ever and everything was his fault. Then there are people who think our current president is the worst ever and our previous president was the best ever. Okay, And no information, no uh, argument can seem to change either point of view because it is very subjective, very subjective on those things. Okay. So in political discourse, as well as in theological discourse within this passage, as we see, it seems as if people are speaking completely different languages. And if there's not a language barrier, there is an understanding barrier. Why can't you understand my perspective? And the person you're talking to is saying the same thing. Don't you see what these things all add up to this? And you're going, no, they add up to this. How is that possible? But we come with Two different conclusions. So keep that in mind. We're also going to look at, at, at this idea as well. Have you ever come across somebody and, and you looked at them for a moment and perhaps you heard them speak and you, you looked at them and said, you must be so-and-so's son or you must be so-and-so's daughter, okay? Because their mannerisms were so much like their father, okay? Um, I've been told that as I get older and my, uh, some of my facial features get larger, that I look more and more like my father looked, okay? Because his facial feature got larger, okay? Uh, so I, I don't know. That, does that happen when you get older? You get, your nose gets bigger. I, maybe that's just the men. Uh, uh, this what so, but people can identify you because you look like your father or you sound like your father. Uh, or you look like your mother. I, I saw my niece uh, just last week, and she, she speaks and acts just like my sister-in-law. Okay, just a miniature version of Susan. Okay? Um, well, 
we can look and see people like that. And now there's some among us who look pretty much like their Heavenly Father because their behavior is so, uh, you know, we have saints and then we have saints, okay? And those saints really are clearly godly because their behavior is righteous and they are gentle and compassionate and kind and it is clear from just their countenance and the way that they act that they belong to their heavenly father. Now there are the other side as well. Those whose words and countenance and actions speak very clearly that they do not belong to their heavenly father, they belong to their other father. Okay, the other father, which Jesus is referring to as he talks to these Jewish leaders here. And they're rebelling at this. So look at verse 37. They said, I, I know that you're Abraham's offspring. And, and as, as Jesus t- tells them these kind of hard things, they're going, well, what are you talking about? We are Abraham's children. And Jesus says, well, I know you're physically Abraham's children, but you're not spiritually Abraham's children. Abraham was a man of faith. Okay, he was a righteous man, and God called him, and he was obedient to the Lord. And they're saying, but we belong to Abraham. And he said, well, if you belong to Abraham, you would act like Abraham. And Abraham was a man of faith. But instead, what are you trying to do? You're trying to kill me, the Messiah, the one that Abraham longed to see, the one that, that was spoken of in the Old Testament. If you belong to Abraham, you would rejoice that the Messiah was here, but you don't. You are trying to kill him. You seek to kill me because my word has no place in you. The short answer is, why does my word have no place in you? You don't belong to the Heavenly Father. You don't belong to the Heavenly Father. You're not here in this context. You are not spiritual descendants of Abraham. You're just physical descendants. That's all. I speak, verse 38, I speak the things which I have seen with my father... Therefore, you also do the things which you heard from your father. If they're out trying to kill Jesus, these are not works of our Heavenly Father. These are works of Satan. Okay, And that's what Jesus is saying here. You don't even understand my words. You don't even understand the language that I'm speaking because you come from a different father. Now, anybody who has been through uh, the love and respect... Uh, if you, a couple, you understand the difference between pink and blue. Okay, ladies speak and hear in pink, and men speak and hear in blue. And sometimes they just don't connect. You know, if you ever hear your spouse and they're saying something, and you're looking at them, going, "I don't understand what it is that you're saying." Can't you speak my language? No, because they're of the opposite sex. They just have a different perspective and a different view, and that's good. Okay, that is good. We just have to learn to communicate better. Here, there's no communicating. There's no bridging the gap between children of our Heavenly Father and children of their Father. It is a completely different language. They don't understand what Jesus says because they have a different Father. A different Father. Now, how does this other Father, Satan, work in the world? Now here we see that their eyes are closed completely to the things of Christ. In fact, they're hostile to it. They want to kill Jesus. But in our world, how does Satan work? Not everyone who does not believe in God hates God. Okay? There are those who are simply apathetic. If you ask them, do they believe, they would say no. And would say, do you hate God? Well, no, I don't hate God. I just don't give them another thought. Okay? They're simply apathetic. They don't 
purposely work against his will, but nor do they purposely rejoice and worship our Heavenly Father. They just think that they're doing their own thing. Now, most people serve themselves, and they're not interested in joyously following Christ, but they give no thought of serving Satan otherwise, or, or on the contrary. There are some, of course, who purposely and willingly serve Satan. They are, have a concerted effort to destroy the things of Christ. Uh, they purposely seek out the things of evil. Um, and, and perhaps you have even met people like this but don't know it because of the subtlety of Satan. And that's a particularly, and I love this word, pernicious evil. And that's a subtle evil. A subtle evil, one that we don't even know exists until it's already been an influence in our life. Okay? Um, there are clear manifestations of evil in the world, and we typically understand that. Those which hit us right in the face. Sometimes they have a name, sometimes they are given a human form. If we had to pick out uh, you know, leaders from society uh, that were perhaps manifestations of evil in the world, we might pick out leaders like Stalin or Hitler or people like that. They have a face and are on a worldwide scale. They desire only their own things. They desire power, control, all of these evil things, and they subjugate and destroy anything that stands in their way. And if you've been in the presence of people like that, not necessarily those names, but people who are clearly evil, you get, you know, the hair on the back of your neck seems to stand up, and you, you, you just feel like you need a shower after talking to them, like you've been in the presence of evil, okay? But that doesn't always happen in that form. Sometimes the evil is so subtle. Sometimes Satan is so... Um, so careful about how he presents his actions and his, his plans that we don't even realize they're from Satan. Let me quote a, a few things here. One from Charles Spurgeon. He says, Satan has abundant craft and is able to overcome us for several reasons. I think it would be sufficient reason that Satan should be cunning because he is malicious, for, mal for malice is of all things the most productive of cunning. When a man is determined on revenge, it is strange how cunning he is to find out opportunities to vent his spite. Let a man have enmity against another, and let the enmity thoroughly possess his soul and pour venom, as it were, into his very blood, and he will become exceedingly crafty in the means he uses to annoy and injure his adversary. Now, nobody can be more full of malice against man than Satan is, as he proves every day. And that malice sharpens his inherent wisdom so that he becomes exceedingly subtle. Okay, do you understand? When are we at our most crafty? When are we at our most cunning? And, and Spurgeon says when we're full of malice. When we want to get back at somebody. Okay, now, perhaps you can think back at uh, some time in your life when somebody pulled a practical joke on you. Okay, we were always doing this at college, okay? Um, going in, hitting people with snowballs in the shower. Girls didn't do that kind of thing. That's typically a guy thing. Pouring water on another person. Uh, we had this, we called it the puffer. So any of you about to go to college, this is a good thing to do. You take a bike, bicycle inner tube from a tire, and you, you, here's the, the stem, and you cut it off about here, and then you tie it in a tight knot. And then you take the long end, and you fold it over, 
So you have about that much sticking out, and then here's the down and up, and then you have all this, and here's the stem, and here's the knot. You put baby powder in this end, okay? And then you pump it up and, until you get a big bulge here in the bicycle tire, and you open somebody's door just a crack, you stick the thing in, and you go poof, like that. And all the air expels the baby powder all through their room. Okay, that was a great one. And, you know, as soon as that happened, their minds are thinking, how am I going to get back at Jenkins? Okay? <laughs> Not that they knew it was me, but sometimes they did. Or, or you know, we, so, so as soon as you want to get back at somebody, your mind gets cunning and crafty. And that's what Spurgeon is talking about here. Satan has been foiled by the Lord. He's been kicked out of heaven, and now he has to live within these parameters the Lord set, and his mind is working overtime. How can I get back at the creation of this God that I hate? So he is very crafty. He is cunning. Satan is an angel, though he is a fallen one. I continue with Spurgeon. We doubt not from certain hints in Scripture that he occupied a very high place in the hierarchy of angels before he fell. And we know that those mighty beings are endowed with a vast intellect, far surpassing any that has been given to humans. Therefore, we must not expect that a man, unaided from above, should ever be a match for an angel, especially an angel whose native intellect has been sharpened by a most spiteful malice against us. A spiteful malice against us. Turn over to 2 Corinthians chapter 10. Let's look at there. to address the baby powder again. You know, it gets everywhere because it's so fine. And, and, and it, you can feel it everywhere. And it makes this big cloud. And, you know, dorm rooms are not that large. And you do it, especially when they're sleeping and they wake up and they got white stuff all over them. And... Now, you didn't hear that from the preacher, college students, okay? There are other ways to do it, too. Okay. Second Corinthians chapter 10, verses 3, starting verse 3. This is the battle that we are engaged in. It is not a battle against flesh and blood. It is a battle against something that is spiritual. For though we walk in the flesh, we do not war according to the flesh. And, and that word is used specifically. War. We do not war against the flesh. For the weapons of our warfare are not of the flesh, but divinely powerful for the destruction of fortresses. We are destroying speculations and every lofty thing raised up against the knowledge of God. And we are taking every thought captive to the obedience of Christ. Okay? We are at war with Satan. Now, it is a battle that we and ourselves cannot win, but the Lord is victorious. We've read the end of the book. We know how it turns out. The Lord wins. Okay? But in the day-to-day -day life, the living out of the Christian life, we are faced with these subtleties of Satan and how he attacks us, how he comes after us, and his purpose is to thwart God's purposes. Okay, It's not to make me look bad. In fact, I don't care if he makes me look bad. I, got, I do that myself. But it is to thwart the purposes of our Heavenly Father. Now, how does he do that? Oh, man, you know, you can't, you know, don't read the Word today. You've got other things to do. Okay, oh, don't go to church today. You know, it's beautiful. This is a day to go hiking. 
Okay, it's not a day to, to go to church. It's a day to play golf. Oh, let's go down the lake and, and do this. Or, you know, it's anything to keep us away from the things that serve the purposes of our Heavenly Father. Okay? Oh, you know, you, you, got that, you got that bonus. Oh, you've always wanted that boat. Well, I could spend it all on this boat, or I could tithe and spend it on this boat. Which do you want to do? Satan wants you to have the boat of your dreams. Don't give aid to the Lord, okay? These are the ways that Satan works. Every good general in a war will use whatever means he can to achieve victory. Some of those are deception, misinformation, propaganda, infiltration, subversion, rumors, misleading information, as well as a frontal attack. But how often is a frontal attack only the feint and only to draw the defenses here while the real attack comes around from the side. George Whitfield, a great preacher, talks about the subtlety of Satan, especially in the Garden of Eden. He is an enemy to God and to goodness. He is a hater of all truth. Why else did he slander God in paradise? Why did he tell Eve, you shall not surely die? Remember, Satan is best at what? Lying. Okay, he is best at lying. You shall not surely die. And the Lord had just said, on the day you eat of it, what happens? You die. Now, you didn't physically die at that moment, but you spiritually died. So Satan is using a, a subtle mix of truth and a lie and says, you will not die. Okay, don't think of it that way. Why did he promise to give all the kingdoms of the world and the glories of them to Christ, if he should fall down and worship him. Did Satan own all the kingdoms, all the glories? Could he actually give them to Christ? No, he could not. He is full of malice and envy and revenge. For what other motives could induce him to molest innocent men in paradise? And why is he still so restless in his attempts to destroy us, who have done him no wrong? He is a being of great power. But what he is most remarkable for is his subtlety. For not having power given him from above to take us by force, he is obliged to wait for opportunities to betray us and to catch us by guile. Satan did not approach Adam directly, but he used Eve as his tool. Scripture says that Satan transforms himself into an angel of light. He is everywhere representative as the deceiver, using false guiles and making false representations. Satan tempted Christ directly in the wilderness, and he failed. So then Satan used a more subtle approach. Remember who he used to try to influence Christ? Peter. And what did the Lord say to Peter? He didn't say, Peter, shut up. He said, get behind me, Satan. Because he saw that Satan was using Peter in a roundabout way. No more frontal attack. He said, I'll use the back door, the side door. Genesis says that Eve saw that the tree was good for food and pleasant to the eyes. Where Eve was standing, she could see the fruit. Now note that Satan attacks when he can take full advantage of the lust of the eyes. It wasn't something that was uh, nebulous. It wasn't something that was obscure. Satan kind of waits till, till Eve is there and says, look at that. Doesn't that look good? So she can see it with her eyes. Also, he attacks near the tree in order to cause her to eat the fruit quickly while her mind is deceived. Satan is like... A slick, this is Whitfield's words, Satan acts like a slick door-to-door -door salesman by making his case near the tree 
Eve can move from evil thought to evil deed without ever having to reconsider. Why is it that a candy bar sounds so good while you're standing in the checkout line at the grocery store? Because your eyes have behold it. Why is it that suddenly you've seen the National Enquirer and the relationship drama of some no-account starlet who has had way too much plastic surgery sounds very important that you should know, okay? Because you have seen it. Your eyes have beheld it. It is right there in front of you, okay? That's the way that Satan works. It's very subtle. You, you really don't care about that girl. You don't care about who she dates or, or whatever. You, you really don't even like that type of chocolate, but it is right there in front of you. And, you know, the person in front of you, you're in the, you're in the express line, and they've got 40 things. So, but you're stand, so you've got a couple minutes to look at the great new diet that the stars use. You can see which star has good clothes and bad clothes, and suddenly these things are very important to you. When, when in reality, you couldn't care less about them before, but they are in front of your eyes, and that's the way that Satan works. Look back, back to John chapter 8. And you might be able to find things in your own life where you never thought about them before, but once your eyes beheld them, they became very important to you. Where suddenly your mind began to fixate on them after you had seen them. John chapter 8, 42, Jesus says, If God were your father, you would love me. That's what it comes down to. If you belong to God, then you love Christ. If not, you don't. Okay? The type of love that Christ is talking about here is not the, simply the words that come out of our minds. I love God. He's not talking about that. He's talking about the type of love that is demonstrated, the type of love that is seen each and every day. It is a love that is practiced. It is a love that is put into use as we demonstrate these things to those among us. Do we love the least of these? Okay? Somebody asked me to go a mile, what am I supposed to do? You go too, okay? We don't just do what we're called to do. The love of Christ compels us to go beyond the norm to what the Christ would do for us. And there is no mistaking the motives in the love that comes from our Heavenly Father. To love Christ over against the works of Satan is to differ because the works of Satan are subtle, sound good for the moment, maybe even will taste good or feel good for an instant, but they have lasting negative consequences. The works of Christ are blatant works of compassion and love and of gentleness and of kindness and things that point to our Heavenly Father. It's amazing how many people in this world are used by Satan, whether they know it or not, and the Bible says that he cares nothing for them. He cares nothing for them. He cares only about his self and his own agenda. He goes about like a roaring lion seeking whom he may devour. All he wants to do is destroy men. Scripture says he is a murderer. And worst of all, he will willingly work to make us think that we are doing something that is good for ourselves or that feels good or that tastes good or that seems to be good, but in reality, it is not for us. It only serves his purposes. Verse 44 says, there is no truth in him. And it's not until afterwards that we find that we have been lied to. We find that the life of that starlet is not really important. 
that that chocolate bar tasted good, but you know what? By the time I got to the car, man, I feel ill. Okay? Or I got a headache, all that sugar rush. And you know how much I like chocolate. Jesus tells the truth, and they don't believe him, but they believe the lies of Satan. Timothy, or Paul in his letter to Timothy later says, Timothy, at, at the end times, don't be surprised that people won't want to hear the gospel. They'll only want to hear things that tickle their ears, things that they like to hear. That happens all the time. People like to hear the things that fit their own agenda. And Satan will use those types of things to serve his purposes. And that is to thwart the things of God, to come into our lives and make us think that the things of God are not that important that our own time of, of, of devotion and reading the word is not that important, that demonstrating those, those actions to our neighbors and those around us are not that important. They'll, they'll get by without you being nice to them. Okay? But those are the things that, build, that demonstrate the love of Christ. Satan says, don't think about those. Think about things that only fill your own heart, the things that serve your own purposes, things that make you feel good. That's the subtlety of Satan to take our eyes off the Heavenly Father and place them upon us. Let's pray. Gracious Lord, the things of Satan are clever and subtle, but they are evil nonetheless. We don't always see them for what they are. Your word is clear. How do we resist the things of Satan? We stand firm in our faith. We study the word. We know what it says. We fill our hearts with it. We keep our eyes and hearts focused upon the things that are right and pure and just. Keep these things in our minds, Lord, that we would not fall for these subtleties of Satan, that we would not fall into his trap and snare and, and focus our minds on the things that are unimportant, but we would keep our attention focused upon you, upon the call you placed upon our hearts, upon what you call us to do today, the living out of the Christian faith in word and deed. That those among us that you, you bring into our lives might hear the things of Christ, hear of his gentleness and his compassion and his love and his sacrifice for our sins, and that they, they, they might see it in our lives as we demonstrate that love as the compassion flows through us, as we attempt to live out that same gentleness and kindness. Lord, we will do it imperfectly. But when we strive to do it, when we seek your perfect hand and wisdom in those things, then you will use our imperfect actions to convince and open hearts to the things of Christ. For it's in his name that we pray. Amen. Why do I sing about Jesus? Because he is my Lord and my Savior. Let's stand and sing six hundred.